Good morning. Everyone okay? Everyone's good? It's not 15 degrees. That's well, that's like uh, enough reason to kind of celebrate a little bit. I woke up Saturday morning and I was like, hey, I didn't check the weather. I was like, maybe it'll be better today and I can go out and do something. And I woke up at like 7.30 and it was 15 degrees outside. And I was like, nope, we'll just stay in bed. So uh, that's what I did yesterday. And for those of you doing the fast, hope that's going well. By this time you've, yeah. By this time you've realized how few good Christian movies there are, right? You're thinking about watching The Chosen for the second time and restarting that, um, or just giving up on media altogether. So um, seriously though, I hope it's been a blessing. I hope it's been good for you so far as you're doing that fast. It's, it's not easy, it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be a sacrifice, but it's, uh, it's good. So we are working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We started this a couple of weeks ago. We did chapter two last week, and we'll do chapter three this week. If you have not been here, let me tell you a little bit about this book of the Bible. It's a, it's a fascinating book of the Bible. It's an extremely relevant book of the Bible, especially for what we're going through in this part of the world in this day and age. It is essentially about this. Uh, a man named Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, wrote a letter to a church which was in southern Greece, not too far from Athens. And interestingly enough, I was listening to a podcast this week. I'm not a huge podcaster, but there's one in particular called Communio Sanctorum that I really, really like. I've been listening to for years uh, about the history of the Christian church. And um, Lance Ralston, the guy that does this, uh, mentioned Corinth, the city of Corinth and the church of Corinthians in this podcast. And it kind of caught my attention because I'm teaching Corinthians. And I never really heard it said like this. He said, in the Roman world, Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of the Roman world. Basically what that meant is if you talk to a Roman citizen, most Roman citizens were, the Roman, Roman culture was very hedonistic, right? Very godless, even though they believed in a bunch of gods, they were very godless by our standards. And they would say that the people in Corinth were, were kind of the, the worst of the worst. They would say, um, just like if you're talking to someone in the United States and they're like, man, it gets crazy in Nashville, you'd be like, well, have you ever been to Las Vegas, right? Like, it, it's pretty crazy there. They would say that about Corinth. So. Paul wrote this letter to a church that had been planted in one of the wildest areas in the Roman Empire, Corinth, which was in modern-day Greece. And the reason he wrote these letters, he wrote two, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, was because this group of Christians that knew better, right? They had access not only to the Old Testament, the Word of God at that time, they were receiving what was going to be the New Testament, these letters from Paul, and they had access to good leadership. So they knew God, they had access to good godly leadership. They had the word of God. They had everything they need to live godly lives. The problem was is that they started taking their focus and their emphasis and their value off of the truth of Jesus. And they started going back and putting more stock and value in the culture of the world. Paul calls it worldly wisdom, right? That they were focusing more on that. And because of that, all these, all these problems ensued, right? Chaos and confusion and really immoral behavior ensued, and that's why Paul wrote two letters to them, correcting them. In chapter two, Paul does this very slick thing, right? Paul, Paul kind of self-deprecates, if you've never read the, the works of Paul. He, I'm not anything, I'm not this, I'm not smart, I'm not wise. He was very intelligent, and he writes very intelligently. And at the end of chapter two, he asks this question, and, and makes a statement about the mind of Christ. He says, who has the mind of Christ? Then he says, we have the mind of Christ. And what that means is, not that we are equal to Jesus Christ, but because of the word of God, because of the Holy Spirit that God gives us when we're saved, we should think like Jesus thinks. We should look at people the way Jesus looks at people. We should respond to people the way Jesus told us to respond. And we should look at ourselves the way that God looks at us, right? Which is of a high value. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live by the mind of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're gonna do chapter three, and we'll go through it relatively quick, it's pretty short. But this week, we're gonna talk about identity, which goes along a little bit with what we talked about in chapter two, this mind of Christ. But we're gonna talk about identity. Um, which is extremely relevant because we live in a society right now that has an, an absolutely uh, uh, enormous identity crisis. We have no idea who we are, right? So we try to find it and all of these different things and all it leads us to is, is more confusion, more chaos, right? More trouble. So we're gonna talk about identity today. 
You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm gonna say will be in that. Um, everything will be on the screens around the room. If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, everything will be on there. Just click on sermon notes, you get all the scripture. All the notes are right there. If you have a Bible, or in the New Testament, so towards the back of that book, and right after the book of Romans, you have the book of First and Second Corinthians, okay? So, I'm gonna pray. We will jump into this, and um, we'll see what happens, okay? All right? And I'm probably gonna take this cardigan off because it's hotter up here than what I thought it was gonna be. Uh, let me tell you something for you younger people in the room. Um, I love this cardigan. I've had it for a long time. My wife tells me to get a new one because it doesn't quite... <laughs> So what happens is this, just, just letting you guys in, you younger people, you older people know this. What happens as you get older is your entire wardrobe gets smaller. <laughs> it's not that you get bigger. There's something wrong with your entire wardrobe and that is, has is, that is happened to my cardigan, right? So anyways, so I'm gonna pray <laughs> and we will uh, we'll jump into this lesson, right? You older people know exactly, exactly how this feels, right? You younger people are like, never me. And I'm like, nah, just wait. All right, okay. <laughs> Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for everything you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the freedom and the opportunity we have to do um, what we've been doing this morning, God, to worship you freely, to be able to read the word of God freely and to speak about it and to learn from it. Lord, we pray that you uh, bless our church this morning. Not just this church, but all of our other campuses, God. We pray for all the other churches, Lord, in Murfreesboro and all the other churches in the other cities where we have campuses, Lord. We pray for all the great nonprofits we work with, specifically Renewed Life that we're working with this month, God, that they will be blessed financially and with vision and purpose, God. And Lord, we just pray that everything we do today is we talk about identity. We pray, Lord, that we understand you better. And Lord, if we understand you better, we will understand who we are better, God. So Lord, we pray that everything we do today, that it honors you, blesses you, God. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna read a little bit and I'll do my best to break it down, okay? Here we go, Paul writes this. He says, for my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you are not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? So Paul starts this part of the letter off with this. Basically, I love you. He calls them brothers and sisters. He's not literally a brother and sister, biologically speaking, but spiritually, they are brothers and sisters. This is in term of, a term of endearment. He's saying, I love you. I care for you. I respect you, but there's some problems. So when Paul first arrived in Corinth, he had to treat the people in Corinth, the Corinthians, like spiritual infants because that's what they were, right? Once upon a time, we were all spiritual infants. We were new at this Christian thing. So he had to give them what he calls theological milk. That's all they could process at that time before they could get to the meat of theology, the deeper things of God. Now, this is a very simple statement, right? And everyone knows this, but we tend to forget this when it comes to discipling other people. Too much food too quickly makes infants choke. Amen. What that means is, is when we bring someone into a relationship with Christ, right? And we are teaching them and we are instructing them, we have to be patient with them because they're not gonna know everything right off the bat. We have to explain things. We have to walk slowly with them. That had to be the case with me. I'm sure it had to be the case with most of you, right? So we have to be patient when people are new into the faith. The problem with the Corinthians though was this, they never grew out of that, which is the problem in the United States with a lot of people too. The problem is, is that they hadn't progressed from milk to meat, to the deeper things of the teachings of the word of God. And this was evident in how they lived. You're divisive, you're argumentative, you're envious, and you're, you're like that amongst yourselves. And that shows that you have never got to the deeper things of the word of God. So here's the thing. Salvation is not just an event in your life, it is your life. Amen. We are to live our salvation. 
It's not enough to just say, well, man, I got saved when I was 14 years old, been living like hell ever since. Something is wrong. And if you wanna get into the theological side of that, we can talk about Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination, free will, all those things. The bottom line is this, right? If we are not living in the ways of Christ, there's something wrong with our soul. There is something wrong with us. And so Paul says, I gave you this, you receive salvation, but something isn't clicking right because salvation should affect how you live every single day. As time passes, we shouldn't just know more about Jesus, we should be living more in that knowledge of Jesus every single day as time passes. But the criticism Paul had for this church was, you're still acting like people that don't know Jesus. So the criticism of the Christians is that you're still acting worldly. Specifically, he was talking about their envy, wanting what other people have. Another problem we see quite often, right, in the culture we live in, and causing strife, arguments, division. The problem was this. Paul said you have every access, you have every tool to not live like that. Not only do you have the knowledge of God and the ways of God, you have the Holy Spirit of God that empowers you to live righteously. So not only do we know what to do, we have the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do what we're supposed to do. And this is why Paul was upset with his church. You have not moved from what is milk to what is meat. And I love this term. He says, you guys are living like mere humans. Now, because the Corinthians, listen to this, were enamored with celebrity culture, church culture, right? I'm not talking about people on TV. I'm not talking about people on the internet. They, they had created a celebrity culture within the church. And they were also very selfish. It wasn't just about celebrity culture within the church. It's what I can get out of church. They were selfish. And this is acting just like non-believers. And so Paul says, you're acting like mere humans. Now listen, that doesn't mean that as Christians, we're better than anyone else. But if we are Christians, it means we have a supernatural force that resides in us. So we are to live supernaturally, not just in the natural, not just as mere humans, but as something bigger than that. Because in Matthew chapter five, Jesus looks at his followers and he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the world. And what that means, is it is impossible for us to be the light of the world if we are living amongst darkness, if we are doing dark things. It is impossible to be the salt of the world when we're not adding, as Jesus would say, flavor to the situations, to the environments that we are in. We are to live at a different standard. But when we are living at the same standard as people that do not know the truth, we're living just like mere humans. We're not living to our potential with God's spirit in us, okay? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field and God's building. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on top of it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's works. And if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I'll explain what this means. What Paul is talking about in this part is the responsibility of Christian leadership. So Paul asks this divided church. They're divided by celebrity speakers, right? 
Paul being one of them. He says, what is Apollos? Apollos was a, a influential Christian leader at this time who Paul was very good friends with, right? They were on the same page. He says, what is Paul? And he asks this to set up an explanation of what church leaders are supposed to be. So unlike leaders in the world, church leaders are to be servants. They're to be servants to the congregation, not just servants to the congregation, servants to the community in which they live in. And the goal is to advance the truth of Christ, not to advance themselves. Listen, I hope this doesn't offend anyone that follows whatever. Paul would have never had a paul.com. It would have never been about advancing the name of Paul. He would have never done that. It wouldn't have been, listen, I spoke at a conference one time. This is a true story. I hate conferences with a fiery passion. Um, I haven't spoken at one in a while and, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not upset about that. I was speaking at a conference and they had cardboard cutouts of the more prominent, not of me, but of more prominent speakers than me. And I remember being in the foyer and people were taking pictures with cardboard cutouts of speakers. And I'm like, this should not be the way it is. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not about the advancement of that worship leader or that author or that pastor. This is the advancement of the gospel. And I get the feeling that God would have came in here, Jesus would have came in here and thrown some tables over because this looks like a marketplace, right? And it bothered me profusely. But this is what we have done. And Paul says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So here's the thing. The work of the ministry, though, is not just reserved for people who do it as a job, as a vocation. The work of the ministry is for everyone that calls himself a Christian. He says, the Lord has given everyone a role in this. We are all doing something in this. This means that anyone that calls himself a Christian is to be contributing to the great commission of baptizing, discipling, and teaching. Because the goal is not the advancement of an individual. The goal is not the advancement of an organization. The goal is that less people go to hell and more people go to heaven. That is the goal. And we have forgotten that. Not we, but I'm saying the church in the United States has missed this point. So here's the thing. One person may plant the seed, another person may water it, but it's God that makes anything happen at all. And it's not about us getting any credit for that. So we may plant the seed of Jesus in somebody, and it may be someone on the other side of the world that actually waters that, disciples that person. But listen, both of us are co-workers, and it is God that really does the work in that. So Paul says, we're not anything. That doesn't mean that we're not valuable to God. You're valuable to God. We'll talk about this at the end. It doesn't mean that you're not valuable to the church, right? Or to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that at all. What it means is, is that it's God that changes hearts, not people. Amen. Now, what's interesting though is God, even though he's the one that does the miraculous work in people's hearts and lives, we do get to be on the same team as God. It is a team effort. So again, some may plant, some may water, but we're co-workers. And Paul says we are God's field. So listen, we plant and we water, but like this all belongs to God. The whole thing belongs to him. It's not ours to dictate the direction of or, or the production of Christianity. This is God's church. This is God's people. So Paul goes from an agricultural analogy seeds, watering, things growing, right? Agriculture. And then he moves to an architectural analogy. So he says, I was a skilled master builder by God's grace. That wasn't arrogant of him to say because he clarified that. I, I, I have done a good job laying a foundation because God is good, right? Because God has blessed me and has enabled me to lay this foundation. So here's the thing. Paul laid this foundation of the faith for us, right? Most of the New Testament. And he says, we need to be very, very careful how we are to build upon that. Now listen, we need to be very careful how we handle the gospel in our generation, in our day and age, because there are people who have come before us. Listen, too few Christians study church history. I'm glad that you read the Bible, you need to read the Bible. There is a lot that happened post this Bible, right? people who have given their lives, who have sacrificed much so we can have the freedom to hold these pages. And we forget about that. We forget about the work of our Christian brothers and sisters who are not recorded in the Bible, who've done amazing things for us. And it would behoove you to study that a little bit, to know a little bit about the foundation that has been laid in the past 2,000 years of people who have sacrificed their lives, like Perpetua, 
who was a woman in the Roman Empire in the second century, who was a, a rich, beautiful young woman in her 20s, who had a child, who became an outspoken Christian in the Roman Empire, who was brought into the Colosseum, given an opportunity to denounce her faith in Jesus. And as she was on her knees, she said, I cannot denounce my faith in Jesus. A rich, beautiful young woman with children. So they bring out a gladiator to start hacking on Perpetua, this woman, in front of screaming fans. And as the gladiator hacked on her body, for some reason, she still wasn't dead. And so she grabbed the gladiator's sword, put it on her neck and said, go ahead, I know exactly where I'm going. Amen. And we forget about people like this. And we don't go back and study that there was a foundation laid by people that gave their lives Amen. so we could have these things. So we must be careful how we build on the previous generation's layers and foundations of the gospel. But how do we do that? Well, Paul makes it very clear. The foundation that he laid was a foundation of Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. And the only foundation we can lay on the foundation of Jesus is more Jesus. So this means that we teach the gospel and we help others to go into a deeper understanding of Jesus. This goes back to, we have to remove ourselves as much as we can from the equation. We are, we, our goal is not to change lives. We're incapable of changing lives. Our goal is to introduce people to the one that can change their life. That's all we do. So the message always has to be more and more Jesus. And so Paul warns us, if we try to build on the foundation of the gospel in Jesus with anything other than Jesus, which means anything built by human hands, it's not going to work. God's going to make sure that it is revealed that those things don't work. Now, what does that mean? He says we don't build upon it with gold and silver and hay and all these things that are man-made. In our day and age, this can be extravagant, ridiculous buildings that we build these monstrosities and say, come to us, look how prosperous we are. Those of you who are old enough to remember, I wasn't a Christian in the 80s and 90s, but those of you who are old enough to remember, the mindset of Christianity in the United States in the 80s and 90s was, let's create these huge buildings with gyms and racquetball courts and workout facilities and all this other bull that churches aren't supposed to do, right? And the mentality was, we don't have to go deal with people that aren't like us, we can all come here. And it basically a glorified commune is what it was. And so we don't have to go, we don't have to go mingle with those people. We have created this one-stop shop, right? Now this church has intentionally done the opposite. I don't want you in this place all the time. That's why we don't have midweek services. Go out, go, go meet people that don't know Jesus and lay the foundation. We're not trying to get people in by the things we have. We're not trying to get them in by bait and switch uh, mentality, right? Let's give away iPads at Easter. That'll get people in and change their lives. Let's have bunnies parachute out of helicopters and let's get a pastor that you know wears like $3,000 shoes and looks all cool and has perfect teeth and has a great YouTube channel. All of this garbage. And so what happens is this. Paul says, man, the only thing that's gonna change lives is more Jesus upon more Jesus, generation after generation, and all these man-made tactics. It's gonna be, bring, be bringing people in by the, by the allure of materialism and prosperity, and that's not God. That's not Jesus. So trying to build a church by any other means than God's way will not work. Case in point, the United States. The more and more we have done, right, to be attractional, to bend to culture, the more and more denominations compromise on their theological integrity, the more and more they decline. The more and more they fall apart. The Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, on and on. And I'm not trying to make fun of other denominations, but the more we compromise on the truth of Jesus, the more the church falls apart. And the book of Corinthians says it. It says it. So listen, this may not be a heaven or hell thing though. What I mean by that is there are some people who do these goofy tactics, right? And it's not because they're evil, terrible pastors or church leaders. It's because maybe they just think, right? That they don't trust the gospel enough to know that it will bring people in. And so it says here that God will, he will reveal this 
And it's not that they're going to go to hell. It says they will be saved, but they will not receive rewards for things that were not Jesus on Jesus on Jesus on Jesus. So we need to be careful to show people grace. Well, those megachurch pastors who build those big, they're gonna go to hell. They're not gonna go to hell, right? That's not what he's saying. But they have already, the Bible says that when we do good things so other people see us, we received our reward already on earth. Amen. We're not gonna receive it in heaven. Amen. But when we do things for the glory of God and when we build Jesus on Jesus, we receive our reward in eternity, maybe not in this life, Amen. okay? All right, last part. I'm sweating now. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. For God's temple is holy and that's what you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God since it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the things in the present or the things to come. Everything is yours and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So look at what Paul does in chapter three. He starts off with the analogy of a seed, and he ends with a temple. So he says, this walk that we have with God starts off as a seed, and not only does it grow into a building, it grows into a temple. Now, the temple of God, Paul refers to as two different things. The first thing in this chapter, he says the temple of God is the church. So let's say those of us in this room, and this is not our entire church, right? But this is a, a, a fourth of our church. So those of us in this room, right? The spirit of God dwells amongst us. It is amongst us. We are the temple of God, not this building, but the people who are in this building. In chapter six of 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's not just the church, it is the individuals in the church that are the temple of the Holy Spirit, okay? This is important. What this shows us is if we are now the temple of God, that no longer does God dwell in a building, but God dwells in his people, right? We have to have an understanding that we are called to a high standard. God wants to reside in us. God has amazing things he wants to do to us and through us, and now we have a mission to carry out. Our life has purpose, our life has meaning, our life has power, and we have the ability and the knowledge now to do what God wants us to do. Paul also says, look at this, that if one has a hand in hurting God's temple, God will destroy that person. When it says hurting God's temple, it's not necessarily talking about physically hurting, it is talking about the integrity of God's temple the integrity of the church body and the individual's integrity. If someone hurts that integrity, right, they will be dealt with by God. How do we destroy God's temple? How does that happen? Verse 18 through 23 tell us how we destroy God's temple. When we compromise the integrity of the church, we destroy the place where God wants to dwell. I've said this before, God will not occupy the same space as other gods. He will not do that. We have to, we, there, there are no other gods but, but God, but you know what I'm saying? Things that we elevate as idols in our life. We have to get rid of those things and that's the only way God will occupy our lives. So this goes back to this problem that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church, that the Corinthians have moved away from the wisdom of the word of God and they have started putting more value on the wisdom of the world. So here's what happens. When we as a church and we as individuals, when we start making church more about what we can get out of it, and when we start compromising and buckling to cultural pressures, it, it hurts the integrity of church and the countdown to confusion and chaos begins. So when we compromise the integrity of an organization, the church organization, when we compromise our personal integrity, we are destroying the temple of God. And according to the Bible, right? God is going to, man, it just says it, destroy us. 
Paul goes on to say, the reasonings of the wise are futile. It is just another reminder that, that the outcome of our selfish ambition is always the same, futile. It comes to an end. History teaches us this. If you wanna study any great empire that has ever existed, they have all fallen, all of them. I'm, I'm kind of enamored with, with Roman history, a, a magnificent empire that spanned the entire known world architecturally and all kinds of stuff, it's just fascinating. They fell. They fell because of their disconnect from the true God. And every great empire, and I'm gonna tell you what, America is not immune to this. People hate it when I say stuff like that, right? It's because we've made an idol out of our nation too. So we tend to brag on ourselves as a people, right? We are the one nation under God, which is a ridiculous statement. We brag on ourselves as enlightened, as superior. Let me tell you what, if you've never traveled outside of the United States, everyone else in the world thinks we are the most hubris, arrogant people on planet Earth. Because we are. We are extremely arrogant. There is a bravado and a, and a filth that comes from the United States unlike any other nation on planet Earth. And here's the thing, the truth, the more superior and the more, listen, in American culture, we're not just above God right now, we're above science, we're above logic, we're above reason, we're above everything, right? Our feelings are superior even to those things in the United States. It is absolutely absurd. And when left to our own devices, it is always a recipe for a people falling apart, right? All you have to do, I said this last week, you live in unprecedented times. Right now, you are seeing the most free, prosperous nation that has ever existed. You are seeing it go down in flames at record speeds. You are seeing it right now. You're witnessing this, okay? So Paul, in his wisdom, again, he, he self-deprecates, but Paul was a brilliant writer. He says several times, everything is yours. Life and death is yours. Paul and Apollos are yours. Everything is yours. What in the heck does that mean? So the people in Corinth were falling for Greek philosophy. Part of Greek philosophy was something called Stoicism. Stoicism, at the root of Stoicism, Greek Stoics, thought that if you had positive enough thinking and enough discipline, you could overcome anything in your life. You could master any problem. Right? So Paul uses the language of the Greek Stoics and philosophers and he turns it. He says to this group of people that believes in culture more than the word of God, and he says, listen, the Stoics say that you can conquer anything, you can master everything. And he goes, they're right, but with the wrong means. They think that you can conquer any problem with internal things. Paul says, no, 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 you can conquer all things if the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. So is it a question of can we master any situation we're in? We can, but not by our own means, only by God living in us. So he took what they believe and twisted it in a really smart way. And he said, mm, you're kind of half right. The problem is by what means you get to that solution. What he means is we have no right to boast in human philosophies or accomplishments or ideas because anything we accomplish is only because God has allowed us to accomplish those things. And that's what we boast in. That's what we brag in, never in ourselves, right? Can I, can I overcome all things? Well, yeah, but not by my own means, but by the Holy Spirit that lives in me. Can I overcome addictions and porn issues and anger or whatever the case may be? Not by positive thinking. That's the secret and it's garbage, right? If you've never read that book, it's a complete waste of your time. So anyways, let's, if you've never heard of that, you're not missing anything, it's stupid. Okay, so what do we do? If we understand and live in the truth that we belong to Jesus Christ, we will avoid the pitfalls that Paul is trying to get us to avoid, like argumentations, right? Rivalries, um, jealousy, division, gossiping, slander, envy, the allure of culture, materialism, fame and popularity and all these things. We can avoid these traps, listen, if we know who we are. So this goes back when we misplace our identity, when we don't understand what we are made in the image of, we continually try to put a square peg in a round hole and then we get more and more frustrated and angry when things don't fit. This is the country you live in. 
This is the society you live in. Because we do not understand who we are, we're trying to find our identity in everything other than the only thing we are made in the image of. So we are made in the image of God. And until we understand and live in that identity, we're always gonna be a broken people. We're always gonna be chaotic. We're always gonna be confused, right? Both as a people and as individuals. We'll get back to that. Let me go back to this. Paul said, he asked, are you living like mere humans? I'm gonna say this again. You and I in this room are no better than anyone that doesn't know who Jesus Christ is. But because of the knowledge we have and because the power and guidance of the spirit that is in us, we are called to live at a higher standard. Ephesians 1.13 says that when you believed in Jesus Christ and accepted him, you were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit, which means you are given the ability to live at the standard God wants you and I to live at. The reason this is so important is when we are saved, we are not only called to live at a certain standard because, listen, we want to honor the God that gave his only son for our sin. We want to do that. That's one reason why we live the way God wants us to live, to honor our Savior. The other reason we want to live the way God wants us to live is because there are a lot of people around us that don't know Jesus, but they're looking at us. And we have to live with integrity, and we have to live with honesty, and we have to live righteously, because people will see that, and that will draw them into a conversation where we can speak the gospel to them. So we have to ask this question. If we are being honest, are we the salt and light of every environment we step into? gotta be honest, guys. I'm not always, right? When you get bad service somewhere, right? We're paying more for the worst service we've ever gotten right now in culture, aren't we? Paying more for, for you know, things that are thrown together and people who don't want to be there. And it's hard. And it's hard to walk in and smile all the time. It's hard to be the light. It's hard to be the salt. But Jesus looked at his followers in Matthew chapter five, and he says, that's what I've called you to be. And it is impossible to be the light when we're constantly fellowshipping with darkness. It is impossible, right? That's what the Bible says. Here's the other thing. We must know that we are not in this alone. You're not alone. You don't have to single-handedly save the world, right? It's impossible. And you're also not in this for your glory. So we may plant the seed. You may water the seed. Someone else may water it. But it is God that changes the hearts of people. This works on an individual level, and it works on a church level. So that means you may not see the fruit of what you started. You may talk to your neighbor about Jesus, they may move to another state, and it may be someone completely different that disciples them, right? That's okay. Again, remember the goal is not that I get credit, the goal is that that person doesn't go to hell. That's our goal, right? And so that works on an individual level. Listen, it also works on a church level. If you've never been to a next class, I say it and I say it with honesty and sincerity. We don't think you have to come to this church, but we think you need to go to church. And if you don't like me, if you don't like this place, let us show you another church. There are so many people who have come to this church and maybe by God's grace, I have planted a seed of a love for the word of God in them. But maybe they don't like me, maybe, maybe they don't like you. I don't know, maybe they don't like something here. They go on to, to New Vision Baptist Church, which is great. I love Pastor Brady, he's a good, I have uh, lunch with him next week. And so like, like I'm, I'm friends with him, that's fine. My goal is not that they all come to the experience, but that I get to celebrate with them in eternity, right, forever. That's the goal. And so we need to make sure that we're not territorial. We're, we're all on the same team is what I'm saying, right? We're all on the same team. So let me ask you this, and listen, this is, this is the thing that it takes a lot of humility because even in a church that's 5,000 people, when I find out someone leaves, I'm like, what did I do, right? It's, I take it personally, even in a big church, but, are we doing our part in the great commission of discipling, baptizing, teaching, even if our part never gets any credit? Do you know, do you know, do you know, do you know that even if no one else sees the good things you do, God sees it? Amen. Do you know that? Listen, listen, hold on, let me turn it. Do you also know that if you make it a point to let everyone see the good things that you do, that everyone sees it and God's not gonna reward you on the other side Amen. because you've already gotten your reward? That means you don't have to post on Instagram every good thing you've done. Just, just Bible stuff, all right, <laughs> sorry. So the church is the body of God and his spirit dwells in the church. 
If we understand that the church, I'm talking about all of us together, right? We're linked, we're symbiotic, right? If one of you hurts, someone, someone should feel that. We're all connected. If we understand that God's spirit dwells in the church, the church, not just the experience, but Christianity, right? Should conduct itself with high integrity and high impact. That's why we do two vision services a year. I know a lot of you missed the one a couple of weeks ago because of the snow and everything. Hope you go back and watch that. But the reason why I show you where $8.3 million goes every single dollar is because I wanna have high integrity. I want you to know I'm not, I'm not mis misusing your resources. The reason why we do so much in the community is because the church is the hope of the city. So it's not just about what we do within these walls. Our ministry highlight for February is gonna be the public school system in this county. We're gonna give away buttloads of money, right? Which we do every year anyways. That's, that's an actual number, buttloads. Anyways, we're gonna give away... <laughs> We're, get, we're gonna give away tons of money to the public school system. And I had someone criticize me recently about that. Well, why? Isn't that the government's job? And I'm like, yeah, but they're not doing it. So the church will do it. We'll pump money into it because I care. Because you care, right? And we want, listen, we want even the secular world to see what the church does and go, man, this town can't live without that church. That is the reputation that we should have. Not only high integrity, high impact, that if our church were to disappear from Rutherford County, that the Rutherford County would know it. That's how we should function. Now, people are quick to say, that's right. Church should have high integrity. But the church isn't the only temple of God. It's us as individuals too. That means we must live with high integrity and high impact as well that we must live transparent and above reproach. That means that we must be, must be working out the gospel and helping others learn the gospel and building that foundation that Paul talked about, that we have to live in such a way that honors the Holy Spirit that wants to dwell in us, right? That we have to deal and, and get rid of our idols and the things that we put in front of God. Yes, is it the church? Uh-huh, but the church is made up of individuals and we need to worry about that too. It all boils down to this, though. Listen, if you just woke up and you haven't heard anything I've said so far, if you go back, <laughs> if you go back and read chapter three of 1 Corinthians, chapter three of 1 Corinthians hinges on the idea of identity. Who are we? It is a recognition of either who we are in our creator or who we don't think we are in our creator. It is this acknowledgement of who we are. That's what chapter three is all about, identity. And so we must know, listen, we must not only know, but we must live confidently in the image by which we were made. Galatians chapter three, verse 28, Paul talks about identity. He says, you're not a Jew or a Greek. You're not a man or a woman. You're not slave or free. You're all one under Jesus. Now, let me tell you what that means. Paul was saying, you're not black or white. You're not American or Mexican. You're not a man or a woman. You're a Christian. Amen. And so what we learn from that scripture, and people get offended when I say this, but, but again, I didn't write Galatians. There is nothing wrong with us taking some, some healthy pride in some of these things. Listen, I'm raising two girls, a 13-year-old and a nine-year-old, and I'm that kind of dad where I'm like, girls, you can do anything boys can do, right? You wanna be president? You're gonna be president, right? Like, I'm one of those kind of dads, right? I'm all for that. There's nothing wrong with being a proud, strong young woman. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, about being proud about your heritage, right? Your nationality. If you're from, uh, my wife's Italian, there's nothing wrong with, 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 with being proud of her Italian heritage. There's nothing wrong about being proud about being an African-American or any of that stuff. But all of these things are secondary to who we are in Jesus. Because listen, you are, not, you are not made in the image of the nation you were born in. You are not made in the image of money and what you own. There's nothing wrong with money. People misquote the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money is a piece of paper that you exchange for goods and services. It doesn't have a brain. There's nothing malicious about that piece of paper. It is how much value you put on that piece of paper. That's what is evil, right? So there's nothing wrong with having money, but that's not your identity. The neighborhood you live in, the car you drive, the city you live in, that is not your identity. Your sexual preference is not your identity. Your gender is not your identity. And right now we live in a society that finds and places all of its value 
into these things that are not what you are made in the image of. Again, therefore we have all of this confusion. Why is there so much hopelessness? Why is there so much anger and discontentment? Because going back to the analogy, we are trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and it will never work because that's not the image in which we were made. So we continue to live in this heightened state of confusion because our identity is misplaced. And this is why we struggle. This is why suicide continues to skyrocket. This is why divorce continues to skyrocket. This is why people try to find their value in how many thumbs up or hearts they get. They try to find their value in, in how many women they sleep with or, or if their car is as nice as their neighbor's car, or whatever the case may be. And it's never enough because the answer is to know who we are in God. Listen, listen to me. It says in Genesis chapter one and two that we were made in the image of God and the breath of God was breathed into us. There is nothing else in the universe that looks like God except for you. Did you hear that? There is nothing else in the vast expanse of the universe that carries the image of God except for you. There is nothing in the vast expanse of the universe that God has breathed a soul into except for you. Hold on, listen, listen, listen. And the problem right now, right, is we have a, a group of people, we're talking specifically about our society, who are doing everything they can to feel loved, to be valued, to be seen, to be heard. And we don't understand as we're trying to get the attention of all these people around us. Listen, hold on a second. The God that made everything you see and every person you see, he looks down and he says, I know you. We live in a culture right now, I, I, I am 100% convinced the greatest desire of everyone you're going to meet is the, the desire to be known. That's why social media is such a big deal, right? That's why our looks are such a big deal. That's why the house we live in and the neighborhood and the stuff, all these things that we talked about is because we want people to know us. We want to be valued. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. And the irony of God, the creator of all things, is he says in his word, I knew you. I knew you even before, biologically, the DNA of your father and your mother before they, they connected, right? I knew you. I knew everything that you were going to do. I knew every mistake you were going to make, every dumb decision. I knew how many hairs were gonna be on your head. And then you fast forward, right? Into the New Testament, where not only did God know everything about us, God sent his only son to die for us even when we were at our worst. Man. Are you known? Yes, you're known. Maybe not by anyone else on planet earth, but God that created earth knows you. Listen, he sees you. When you speak to him, he hears you. Invaluable, invaluable. Not only that, not only does he see you and love you and know you, he wants, listen, he wants you to live in a standard fit to be an heir to the king. Let me explain what that means. We're not just sons and daughters of the king of kings, right? If you go to the end of this book, which by the way, if you have not read the other 65 books, you have no business going and reading the book of Revelation. It's at the end for a reason. <laughs> but if you, wanna, if you wanna go to the back of your book, right? And if you read about heaven, it says that Jesus will come back, he will obliterate evil. It says he will wipe away the heavens and the earth. That means this earth that we're standing on, the entire universe that we can see when we walk out of this room, right? He will get rid of all that. And it says that he will create a new heaven and a new earth. That means a new universe and a new earth. It says in Revelation that this city, this beautiful city, it even gives you the dimensions and the foundations and what it's made of comes down, right? Rests on the new earth. And the book of Revelation says, and the gates are always open. What this means is this, when we get to heaven, guys, God's not gonna be like, okay, you guys ready to start digging ditches for eternity? That's not what it's like. When we get to heaven, the God that created everything says, it's yours. You have inherited this. This belongs to you. The Bible says that we inherit the throne of God. That means that everything he creates for us, right? He says, this is yours. The beautiful garden in the city 
the foundation of the city, this new earth, you get to explore it. It belongs to you. You are co-heirs. Bible says we are co-heirs with Christ. This universe, go explore it. It's all yours. You, are, you, you get to inherit everything. This is why Jesus looked at his disciples in the book of Matthew and he said, listen, in my father's house are many rooms and if that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. But I love you and I have a place for you if you will just submit and follow me and trust me. If you will just live in the identity by which you are made. You're not just loved and seen and heard and valued. You are a co-heir, a co-heir of God's kingdom. That's what the Bible says. Why is all of this important? Because we have to understand who we are. And the only way that we can understand more of who we are is we have to understand who he is. And then we can live in that identity. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, I'll go ahead and admit to you guys as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I can be pretty hypocritical when it comes to this stuff. What that means is, is I don't always live in the identity by which I'm supposed to live in. Not going into detail and not crying, a, a, you know, I don't need you to like, you know, come up and, and give me encouraging words about this or anything. Those of us in this room that maybe have, have non-existent relationships with our father, sometimes it's hard to live in the identity of our heavenly father when we never had a good earthly father example. And so there's insecurities in me. And it's very easy for me to tell all of you, live in the identity that you have in God. And sometimes, man, I struggle with that. If you are in this room, and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you have questions, maybe of all the stuff I said today, it sounds intriguing to you, but you need, to, you need to inquire a little bit further. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Emily is up here. If you have any questions for her, please come up and talk to her. She'd love to talk with you, okay? If you're in this room and maybe you're like me and sometimes you struggle with that identity, there are men and women on both sides of the stage. You can get prayer for anything you want. But maybe specifically today, if you struggle with value and worth and being, being felt like you're being heard and seen, let someone pray for you, please. The last thing is there is communion all the way around this, this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table. There is bread and wine that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. So your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Let me tell you, if you ever forget just how much God sees you and knows you and loves you, the Bible says that God gave his only son that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It is not God's intention that any of you be separated from him. He loves you. And while we were at our worst, God gave his only son to die for us, to pay for our sin and mistakes, to reconcile us to him so we can know our identity. Everyone who has repented for their sins is welcome to take communion, okay? Let me pray for you though. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you so much, Lord. You've been so good to us. Lord, for any of us in this room or who may be watching online right now, God, who struggle with value or worth or who we are, God, confusion or chaos, whatever, whatever is going on, Lord, I pray that you help us understand who we are in you, God who we belong to, Lord, who we're made in the image of, God, that you have high expectations for us, God, but you enable us to live at those expectations, that you have a kingdom waiting for us, God. And it's not about us inheriting a new earth and a new universe, God, but Lord, we get to be with you forever, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God, for all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.